0: As we continue our study in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, this city that we're going to look at today, the, the city to whom Christ is sending this message, the city of Sardis, is a city that sat on a 1500 foot hill and made it a natural fortress of a location. In fact, the people of the city during the time of the prophets thought that this city was impregnable because of its cliffs and its walls. It was built up on a hill much like Jericho and it was very difficult to conquer. In fact, uh, one of the phrases that came to be used uh, to describe an impossibility was the phrase capturing Sardis. It would be similar to how we use the phrase breaking out of Alcatraz, or we used to use that phrase to say it's it's impossible. It cannot be done. That's the way Sardis was viewed, that it was impossible to defeat. And yet, two times in its recent history to them, it had been defeated because it left its guard down in one specific spot. And as a result, enemies were able to come in and defeat the city on two occasions. What's interesting about this city Uh, from a historical perspective is that it shows to us much of how they looked at themselves spiritually as well. They saw themselves as a church that was in many ways impregnable. They could not be destroyed. They could not be defeated. In fact, we're going to see that they have a name for themselves. They have a reputation of being good, of being rich, and yet they are poor. And the reason that that it's so interesting that, that their history is like this it's because this is the way that Satan often attacks. Sometimes he attacks overtly. It's obvious that it is Satan. He comes out and, and, and makes large claims against the nature of God or the nature of Christ and says that God doesn't exist. That, that is some, sometimes the way that Satan attacks. But many times, he attacks in a covert way. He comes in where we least expected, into a small uh, place that's unguarded, and he comes in and attacks. In fact, Paul warned that this would happen. He said that that in in those days, in in the future, there will be people that come in from even among your own number, your own church members, perhaps, will rise up, and they will they will uh, ignore or deny the name of Christ. They will. They will bring in all sorts of false doctrines. And so you need to keep your guard up. In the, um, some of the churches that we've looked at, we've seen some some overt attacks. Some ones that come and they're very obvious. Like when, when Antipas was killed in Pergamum. But, but what we're going to see today is that this church thought that they were in a good spot, that they were protected Spiritually, and that they could not fall, and yet Christ is saying, You're on the brink of death. You are on the very edge of spiritual disaster. And so you need to keep your guard up, you need to persevere, and continue on until the end. And that's what this message is about today. Let's read in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus writes through the Apostle John, and he says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because... Spiritual death is characterized by lack of works. Jesus is saying to this church, you must be characterized by works. You must persevere in good works. Otherwise, you will evidence with your lack of works that you have never been regenerated. You've never been saved. You are dead. As we normally do, we want to begin with the author and the recipients to this letter. The author is, um, is of course Christ. He, see, you see that the second part of verse one. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This goes back to chapter one, where we saw him uh, with the seven spirits of God and holding the seven stars. And John tells us in chapter one, verse twenty, that the that the seven stars are the seven messengers or the seven angels of the churches. And as I've said before, those Messengers are these ones who are taking this letter to these churches. Each church was represented by a person. Probably not necessarily the pastor here, although some would argue that. I would say it's just someone who represents the church. He's he's a deliverer, a messenger. He's going to John on the island of Patmos where John is writing these letters and sending them along. And each messenger takes them back to the respective churches. Jesus is saying, I have these seven stars in My hand. In other words, I have control over the people who represent these churches, or I have control over the churches. I am sovereignly in control over the churches. And this is the message that I have for you. He also says that He has the seven spirits of God there in verse 1. And uh, we we talked about this and we looked at chapter 1, verse 4 and that it's referring to the Holy Spirit. Not that He has uh, split personalities, um, but this refers back to Zechariah when um, when the prophet there referred to the Spirit as seven. I think the idea there is that He is the complete one. the, the He is complete. And he is total. And, um, and the Holy Spirit is the agent of these letters. The recipients, you see at the beginning of the verse to the angel or the messenger of the church in Sardis. This letter was meant to go to the city of Sardis. This is found in modern Sart, Turkey, and is about 35 miles southeast of Thyatira. Remember, John has sent these letters out and it seems as if they're going on a postal route around Asia Minor, which is modern western Turkey, and and it's going on a postal route all the way around. And so he starts at the at the bottom with Ephesus and and works his way up to Pergamum and Thyatira. And now he's down to Cyrus and coming back around until we finish in Laodicea. Now we don't know a lot about the history of this church. There's no mention of it in the book of Acts as to how it was started. How did Paul start this church? But remember, Paul was in Ephesus for three years, and so it's likely that either he or someone else from that church uh, started this church here in Sardis. And um, However it was started, we know that in its prime, it had a great reputation. It was much like the historic city that was said to be unpenetrable, that it could not be defeated, that the church was very similar to that. And the reason we know that is because of how Jesus describes them at the end of verse 1. I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive. So according to what, how people view you as a church, you are seen as alive, we could say spiritually. That's how people see you. But what Jesus is about to tell them is that time is now over. You, you had a good reputation of being alive and being the center of, of spiritual life, but that time is over. This message was originally written for Sardis, but I think it was intended for more than Sardis, and we know that from verse 6, as I've pointed out in each of these previous four letters. Verse 6 reads, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just what the Spirit says to the church at Sardis. Jesus intended this message for more than them. And I believe that this church at Sardis is in many ways representative of a lot of churches in our day. That they are they have a reputation of being alive, that many people look up to them as being alive spiritually, and that yet what Jesus is going to say to them, what he says to Sardis, is that you are dead. Now we need to evaluate uh, this church based on how Jesus sees them. And the way that Jesus evaluates them is based on what they are doing. That is, that, that, that their spiritual death is recorded for them because of their lack of works. And, and the first thing He says at the end of verse 1 is that your reputation means nothing. Just because you have a reputation of being alive, it means nothing. Notice the end of verse 1 again that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Perhaps among other churches during that time, they were alive for Christ. But, but Jesus is saying, based on your present works, your present deeds, it shows a different picture. That you are dead. Their church looked more like a cemetery spiritually than a living church. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says that they are dead? Well, the word dead, I hope you understand. And he's not referring to physical death, as I have alluded to. He's not saying that you have physical corpses propped up in the pews there at the church of Sardis, right? He's saying that spiritually you are dead. But, but what does this mean? Does this mean that they were a boring church? That they, they sang old hymns? And that they were, they were all kind of moping around and huddling together and doing lots of prayers. Is, is that what it means? That they were boring? I think the very opposite is the case because of this reputation that they had. I think that they were a very vibrant church. That they were an outgoing church. Perhaps they attracted a lot of people. But Christ is saying, it doesn't matter because your reputation is not what's most important. What okay, what other people think of you is not the most important thing. It is important, but not the most important thing. Because spiritually, you're dead. It also doesn't mean that they are completely devoid of spiritual life. It doesn't mean that they have completely abandoned Christ to the point where there are no believers at all. And the reason I say that is because of verse 2. Read that with me. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. Okay, so now what he's saying is he's saying, yes, you are dead spiritually, but you're not completely dead. There are things which are about to die. So there is some semblance of spiritual life. But what he's trying to point out is that you are on the brink of spiritual death. That if you do not, or or, or I should say, if you do continue in the way that you are going, you are headed on a path towards destruction. And so you need to stop. You need to repent. You need to turn around. He's going to talk to them about that. And the reason that he knows that they're dead is because the evidence of spiritual death is failure to do things for God. He says in verse. Uh, one, at the end, uh, towards the end, he says, I know your deeds. Okay, I know your deeds, but I don't know them in a good way. In the past, he has said to other churches, I know your deeds and your service and your love and your perseverance and your faith. And that's a good thing. I know about them. I know what's going on and, and I'm concerned about you. But here he says, I know your deeds, or we could say your lack of deeds. And notice what Christ thinks about them at the end of verse 2. Well, let's just read the whole verse. Verse 2, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. This is what Christ thinks about their deeds. For I have not found your deeds or your works completed in the sight of my God. Why is the church of Sardis on the brink of death? Because they have not completed the deeds that they were set out to do. Christ appears here as a judge. He's saying, I have not found... I have examined all that you have done and what you are doing now. And I have not found them to be satisfactory. They're not acceptable in the sight of my God. They have been tested as to their faithfulness to God, and yet their works were found to be lacking. And as a result... They were found as a whole, in general, as a church, to be unworthy of the calling. This is implied in verse 4. He says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. This is another reason why I think that they're not completely dead spiritually. There are a few that, that remain. Verse 4, uh, and then the second part says, and they will walk with Me in white, for they are worthy. So we could say the opposite is also true that those who have soiled their garments, we'll talk about what that means, those who have not completed their works, they are unworthy. They are not accepted before Me. So, what will Christ tell them to do? If, in fact, they are on the brink of spiritual death, if they are mostly dead, then what should they do? And the answer is found in verses 2 and 3, and that is that they must persevere they must perform spiritual CPR. The solution is found in four main commands. The first is wake up. Look at verse 2. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. Literally, this could be translated be watchful or show yourselves to be watchful. It is a command. And it's not as if they are, uh, there is a sense in which they are sleeping spiritually. They need to wake up. But, but it's probably more along the lines of, of be watchful. Now, this is, a, this is consistent with how Sardis as a city historically uh, needed to respond to their thoughts of being unpenetrable. No one can defeat us because we're set up on a hill. They would have guards that would be all along the outsides of the wall Make sure that no one could come in, but there was one spot in the walls at Sardis that was above some cliffs, a, a, a cliff, very steep drop off and some crevices that could not likely be uh, scaled by a human, so they would not guard that area. they were not fearful of anyone attacking them from that location and yet the two times that they were attacked was when some man from one of their enemies was able to scale those walls somehow, get into the city and open the front gates and allow the enemies to come in. This happened two times in the city historically. And Jesus is saying, get your guard up. You may think that you are at a position where you cannot be attacked, you cannot be destroyed. But I'm saying that your reputation means nothing. You need to get your guard up. You need to wake up. You need to be watchful at all areas. Don't let the enemy in. Sometimes the way that this shows up in our lives is that we put value, more value into something other than Christ. Sure, we want to value Christ, but we value other things more. And do you realize that if you value something or someone more than Christ or God, then that thing or person has become your idol. That thing or person has become your God. Do you realize that you can value your finances more than Christ? The way that you know that you're valuing your finances more than Christ is that you spend all of your time and effort and thought and energy working to build that 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 uh, that portfolio, and you do it at the expense of obeying Christ. If that means I have to cut a few corners here, that I, that if I have to, to to make a few white lies, then it's okay. Because the most important thing for me is my finances. If that means that I don't have to be a part of a church because I want to make sure that I have enough money in my bank account, that I have to work on Sunday, for example, then that's okay. Because that's the most important thing to me. Now, we wouldn't say it that way, but that has become our God if we value finances more than Christ or if we value our recreation or sporting events more than Christ. I can't come to that church service because there's an important playoff game on or there's an important weekly game that's on TV or that I have to go to. That thing has become our God. We've let our guard down. And do you realize that you can even value good things? Both of those things can be used for good, by the way. You can value good things more than Christ. Your family. I'm not going to be a part of that church because they put too much emphasis on joining together to study the Scriptures. And that means that I won't have as much time on the weekends for my family. And I I need to be with my family. Do you see how even... Family can get in the way of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we completely abandon them. But it could be anything. It could be free time. It could be coffee. It could be your job. It could be your vacation. Whatever it is that gets in the place of, of knowing and loving God more has become your God. And in that sense, you have let your guard down. And that's exactly where you will be attacked. Now all those things are not bad in and of themselves, but when anything takes the place of prominence, the place of authority in the world over Christ or God, then we have moved God off of the throne in our, in our lives and we've put that thing in its place. We have dethroned God. And so what Christ is saying is you need to be watchful. Your works are evidence that you don't care about spiritual things. And one of the ways that we need to be watchful, or I guess the way, turn to Mark chapter 14, because the way that we are watchful, that we are on guard, that we are awake spiritually, is shown for us in this, this great picture of, of the disciples who were supposed to come to Jesus to pray with him, come with Jesus to the mountain of Gethsemane on the side of the Mount of Olives, excuse me, in Gethsemane. And they were supposed to pray with him, but instead they're found asleep. Mark chapter 14, verse 34. And he, Jesus, said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And then it talks about his prayer, how he prayed in verse 36 verse 37. And he came and found them, Peter, James, and John, sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Do you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The Spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. What did Jesus mean by keep watching? Well, it tells us there in verse 38 keep watching and praying. Or we could say keep watching, which is praying. The way that we watch spiritually is we pray. Do you see the difference here between Christ and these three disciples? Christ prayed and was strengthened in his inner person, so that he could stand up in the temptation that he was about to face. While the disciples didn't pray, they fell asleep; they were not watchful, and as a result, they all they all were scattered when Christ was at the, the center of his temptation the disciples left. In fact, Peter even denied that he even knew Christ. He denied 3 times. I don't even know him. Stop saying that. And so the way that we watch is we pray. That's the purpose of prayer. It is to strengthen our inner person. When when you're being crushed from the outside when when the circumstances of life are pressing in on you and you don't feel as if you can survive the answer is to be watchful. And the way is not to get more rest, more recreation. The way is to strengthen your inner person, and the way that you do that is through prayer. Turn back to Revelation chapter 3, because Jesus gives a second command as to what they are to do because they are on the brink of spiritual death, and that is that they must revive the spiritual life that remains. They must revive the spiritual life that remains. We see this in verse 2. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. You see, the church was not completely dead. Verse 4 says you have a few people who have not soiled their garments. As a whole, the church was about to die. But the ones that remain, you need to stand up. You need to strengthen what you have. You need to build on that vitality that remains. The third command is found in verse 3. And that is they, they must remember what they had received. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. I think those two are combined into one basic command to remember and keep what they've received. The, the key idea there with what you've received has, points them to the apostles' traditions. The, that is, not just anything that's been handed down through human history, but the apostles' teachings, which are also referred to as the scripture. So, remember what you have heard about, what you've learned in the Scriptures and keep it. It's not enough to just remember those things to call them to memory and say, oh yeah, I remember that. That, Then we need to start living that way is the idea. They needed to persevere in faith and in faithfulness. And then the fourth command. They needed to be watchful, number one. They needed to strengthen what remained. They needed to keep what they had They had received from the Scriptures. And then fourthly, verse 3 tells us that they need to repent. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Repentance simply means to turn from sin to God. So if they're walking away from God, if they're walking towards sin, it's obvious that they need to turn away from their sin and turn to God. That... Complacency in the Christian life is not an understandable mistake that God overlooks. Oh, well, I understand. Complacency is a serious defiance against the Holy God. And if it continues, if we do not repent of our apathy spiritually, of our complacency, then we will give evidence that we never have experienced true conversion. The consequences of not listening to God, of ignoring this remedy, are found in verse 3 as well. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. And here are the consequences if they don't. Therefore, if you do not wake up or if you're not watchful, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. When you hear those words, I will come like a thief, you probably instantly think about the second return of Christ. That He will come like a thief in the night. In In fact, every time this phrase is talked about, this hour of His coming, every time it's talked about in Scripture, it's always referring to the second coming. Matthew 24, Luke 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 16. So Christ is is giving a condition here. He's not saying that if you don't repent, then I'm going to come quicker. Okay. The idea is that at the end times, people will, will defy Christ. They will turn from Him. And that's precisely the time in which He will come. And so he, what he's saying here is that you will not know the hour, so, so be ready or else you'll be a part of the judgment that I'm going to bring on this earth if you're not ready. So you need to repent. You need to turn from what you're doing. So be prepared always. Don't be in the mindset that I'll get to it later. When this circumstance happens in my life, then I will serve God better. You need to strengthen what remains now. Repent now. Turn now. Persevere now. Do what's right now. Live now the way you want to live then. Whatever that is. When I get to college, I'll serve God better. When I get married, when, when I have this, when I have that. Serve God now. So that's the negative consequence of ignoring the remedy. The, the positive consequence of heeding the remedy. In other words, if they do what Christ said in verse 2 and 3 to do these four things. What will Christ do for them? And we see that in verses 4 and 5. And we could summarize them by saying these two things, or all these things in verses 4 and 5, by saying that, that the, that the, the, the uh, consequence, or we could say the reward for obedience, is fellowship with Christ and security in Christ. Notice verse 4. See the first one fellowship in Christ. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with Me in white for they are worthy. There are a few people in their church who have not soiled their garments. Soil means to smear or to pollute, to stain. And their garments are their works. They haven't stained their works. People who who have stained their garments are those who have inconsistently obeyed and who have been weakened in their faith. They're falling away. They are asleep spiritually and possibly even dead, at least on the brink of death. And what Christ is saying is that you have a few that are not doing that, that that are still continuing in their works. And so for those people who persevere until the end, they will have fellowship with Christ. That's why He says, they will walk with Me. That's what that has to do with. That we will have fellowship with Christ if we remain. And we will receive white raiments. Turn to chapter 19 of Revelation. White raiments. Chapter 19. These garments are preserved for Christ. Christ wears a white raiment. Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter 9 talk about his uh, transfiguration. The holy angels wear w- white garments. Chapter 19, verse 14 of Revelation. Notice verse 14 says, "And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white like." fine linen, excuse me, white and clean, were following him on white horses. In verse 8 it says, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The point that I want to draw out from these is that that the white linen shows that we truly have identified ourselves with Christ. It's not just something that we say, but it shows forth in the way that we live that we haven't soiled our garments. We have kept our garments white. And what Christ will do on that final day is He will make them even whiter. He will purify us of all sin. So that's what we have to look forward to. Fellowship with Christ, being clothed in His righteousness. Second thing that we see in Revelation chapter 3, second reward for those who persevere is that they will have security in Christ. Verse 5 He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Again, same idea. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I say that the reward is security in Christ. Why do I say that? And the reason is because He will keep your name in the book of life. Turn to chapter 13, verse 8, because we need to understand what this book of life is, what it contains. Because what Christ is saying in chapter 3 is that He will keep your name in the book of life. Chapter 13, verse 7. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. This is the Antichrist. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nations was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Everyone will worship this Antichrist who is included in that everyone? Everyone whose name was not in the book of life from the foundations of the world. So what we know from this verse is that from before or during the foundation of the world that our names were put into a book of life. All those who would be saved, their names were put into the book of life. Now turn back to chapter 3. Because what it sounds like is that your name actually could be erased from the book of life. Did you notice that in verse 5? He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Is Christ saying here that we can lose our salvation? That he can put our names in and then erase it out if we don't get saved? Is that what he's saying? Well, we know that that is not possible. That is not a possible interpretation because of John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, and Jude 1 which says that God keeps us in the love of Christ, that we can't lose our salvation. So, so, what is he saying? That he will not erase our name from the book of life. What is he saying? Sometimes, when we ask the wrong question, we get the wrong answer. So, the question should not be how can a, na- a person's name be erased? Rather, it should be what is tri- Christ trying to convey? What is he trying to say? And I think he's trying to make the point that there is security in him for overcomers. That your name will not be erased. The sense is you will be secure. It's simply a stronger way of saying your name is in the book of life and it cannot be removed. Let me try to illustrate. I often say to Jennifer, I love you. But I could make that statement even stronger by denying the opposite. I could say, I love no other woman more than I love you. Now, what am I saying there? Am I saying that I have relationships with other women in the world in a loving way and she is the most loving of all of them? Or, I love her the most. Is that what I'm saying? Or that I could enter into a marriage-type relationship with another woman and it wouldn't be as good as loving her. Or, I might try and go and love some other woman to see if you are the most the one that I love most. Is that what I'm trying to say? When I say I love no other woman more than I love you, what I'm saying is I am so convinced that you are the best person for me that I love no other, I seek no other. So when Jesus is saying, I will not erase your name from the book of life, He's not saying that I would ever do something like that. He's saying, your name is in the book of life and you are so secure that it will not be removed. Do you understand? So if you are overcoming, if your life is evidenced with good works, then it's an indication that Christ has done a work in you and that you will be uh, you will be justified finally you will finally be glorified. Romans chapter eight has this great chain of 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 things that Christ has done for us in chapter twenty or chapter eight verses twenty nine and thirty where he says those whom he foreknown, he has foreknown he has also called and those he has called he's also justified and those he has justified he's also glorified. Christ knew whether or not you would trust Him from the foundation of the world, and yet that cannot change. But the evidence that we are a part of Christ is that we are are living a life that is pleasing to God. Because unbelievers cannot please God. Do you understand that? Do you recognize that unbelievers cannot please God? So, security in Christ. Fellowship with Christ for those who overcome and security in Christ. The security in Christ is seen further in verse five at the end. It says, "I will confess His name before my Father and before his angels." Christ will stand before them, and he will say, "Because they have loved me, I love, or "Because they loved me, they have shown that I have loved them." I hope you recognize that there are dead churches like Sardis. There are many churches today that, that lack spiritual watchfulness. And in these churches, what Christ is saying through John is that the ones who remain, the spiritual vitality that remains need to stand up and be counted. They need to stand up and save the people from the brink of death spiritually. That they need to snatch people from the fire. Jude chapter 1, verse 24. Perhaps our church wouldn't be characterized like this, that it's about to die spiritually. But certainly there are those within our number, who need to be rescued from spiritual disaster. Do you think about these people? Are you concerned for their spiritual life? Have you done anything in the last week or month or year to help rescue them from spiritual disaster? Because what Christ is saying is their reputation means nothing. We need to step up and help people who are on the brink of disaster. We have a responsibility before the sight of my God, Jesus says, to make sure that our works and their works are completed. There, there is a danger in churches today of complacency. And there's a danger in our church today of complacency as well. There's a danger in your life personally of being complacent spiritually. And if you've been going to church for a long time, then you are potentially complacent. You are definitely in danger of becoming complacent. And I would hope that every time that you come to worship God, that you are actively engaging your mind and your heart in each area of service. That you are... Truly, truly worshiping God as He desires to be served. I hope that you're talking to God quietly while someone else is praying publicly. I hope that, that you're thinking about the words that you sing as you sing them as in consecration to our God. I hope that you're engaging your mind as the Word of God is open and preached. But if you're not doing that at every service, then you've become complacent. And you've become like... Your breakfast on Thursday morning. You probably don't even remember what you ate for breakfast on Thursday morning. Because it became so. It, breakfast sometimes becomes so mundane. You just do it. And you just go through the motions. You know you need to do it. You do it because you know there's some benefit to it physically. But it's become so common that you don't. You don't think about it. You don't dwell on it. You don't give any thought to it. And, and sometimes when we go to church week after week after week without ever engaging in worship, it becomes like our breakfast on Thursday morning. We don't even know what we did there. Someone could ask us, what did you sing about? For what did you pray? What did you, what did you look at in the Scriptures? What was it that changed your mind about something? We could say, I don't know. It was like breakfast on Thursday. I have no idea. And sadly, we can coast through church services much like we coast through our drive home from work. We don't even remember what happened because we haven't engaged our minds. It becomes so mundane. And we could practically sit through a church service in our sleep because we don't do it so often. I don't mean that, mean that literally, although some of you do. But, I mean, we coast through wide awake. We're, we're, we're honoring God with our lips while, as the prophet says in Isaiah, our hearts are far from Him. Our mouths are moving when we sing. We talk to other people about spiritual things. Our ears are opening and we actually have our eyes opening, opened while the Word is preached, but we're not thinking about it. Our hearts are far from God. And so I say that there is a great danger and complacency in putting our lives in autopilot when it comes to worshiping God. And over time... We begin to think that the most important thing for us is to go to church. So, if we've gone to church, we are okay. We tell other people, we went to church on Sunday, or I'm going to church this Sunday, and then we're okay. And let me tell you that there's no magic in coming to church. We need to engage in worship to God. This is not mundane. Worship requires thought and reflection, meditation, adoration, praise, honor. In order for us to do that, it's going to require that we prepare to meet with God like you would prepare to meet with the king or the president of the United States. You you plan what you're going to do, that you're going to be engaged, that you're going to be well-rested. How do you prepare to meet with God on Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday evening? How can you give your best energy to worshiping God at those services? That may mean they need to turn off the football game on Saturday night. That may mean they need to reflect on what you're going to do the morning of. They need to think about it. Because if we fail to engage with God in worship week after week and month after month and year after year, then we will be on spiritual life support. And by our works or lack thereof, we will indicate that we never knew Christ. Jessica Talbert recently made a comment about a friend of hers who made this comment to an apathetic church attender the friend of Jessica said, what makes you think that you'll be able to worship God for all of eternity if you can't do it now? If you're not doing it now, if you're not engaging your mind now, why would you think you're going to spend all of eternity? Heaven is not about you. If you're not engaging and worshiping God now, why would you do it then? So, we need to beware of spiritual disaster. It doesn't matter what your reputation is. It doesn't matter how that people might think you are alive. You could very well be on the brink of spiritual death. And so, be watchful in prayer, strengthen the things that remain, give attention to what you've learned in the Scriptures, and repent. And if you do, you will prove with your life that Christ really has started a work in you because. If he has started a work in you, then he will complete it all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, verse 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of this church at Sardis. And sadly, we are much like them many times that we have not been watchful, that we've let our guard down spiritually. We thought everything was okay and that the remedy for the trials that come our way was to, is to ignore them or to get more rest or relaxation. And yet, the remedy really is to strengthen our inner person, to, to be watchful in prayer and to engage our minds in worship, to recognize that we are not just spending time with just another person in this world, but we're spending time with the Creator of the universe. Father, You know the hearts of each person here. You know my heart. And I pray that You would search it and know it and reveal to us if there be any sinful way within us and that You would lead us into the way of everlasting. It's so hard for us to evaluate our own hearts because there are so many competing motives within it. As Jeremiah said, who who can know the human heart? It is deceitfully wicked. But we know that your word can shine light on our hearts. And so we pray that it would, as a result of having looked through this passage and considered it for ourselves today, for our church, we pray that you would help us to come away having been changed by it and desiring and resolving to do more. If there are those here who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they have, they have not been awake spiritually, that they are spiritually dead, that You would awaken them, that You would bring them to life. So we know that all who call upon You will be saved. All who confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that You have raised Him from the dead, they will be saved. May You bring salvation to those who are hurting, to those who are searching, to those who are far away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.